Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Melody Edwards. Recently, some right-leaning groups have put a lot of pressure on the Wyoming legislature. It not only brought far-right ideas into Wyoming politics, but it brought enough money to make certain that that voice was predominant. The BLM is trying to figure out their next move when it comes to managing wild horses in the checkerboard. It often tends to be that uh, when finding a balanced approach, both extremes are not happy. And we'll have the story of a father and a son who worked their entire careers to return wild bison to the Wind River Reservation. What animal contributed more to Native people and the life that they lived than that animal? There is none. And we'll have a chat with the famous artist Nelchi. Those stories and more are coming up on Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. Support for Open Spaces podcast comes from the Hobbs School of Environment and Natural Resources at the University of Wyoming. uwyo.edu slash haub. Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. Wyoming Republicans were dealt a setback recently in their efforts to keep sage grouse off the federal endangered species list. Correspondent Matt Laszlo has the story from Washington. House Republicans were able to include a provision in this year's National Defense Authorization Act that would prohibit the federal government from changing the conservation status of sage grouse for the next decade. But that provision was left out when House leaders negotiated a final bill with their Senate counterparts. That didn't sit well with members of the lower chamber. Oh, I'm just exasperated. That's Wyoming Congresswoman Cynthia Lummis. Two years ago, this same scenario played out. The House included the provision on the grouse, and senators stripped it out. After that, Lummis and others demanded a meeting with party leaders. The Western Caucus met with House leadership. We felt that we had a commitment that this wouldn't happen again this year, and it did. So a a lot of members of the Western Caucus feel very, uh, you know, sort of let down and and, uh, maybe a little misled. So it's uh, it's a tough one. Um, There's a lot of unhappy faces around here. But Lummis doesn't blame her party leaders as much as she blames one person the chairman of the powerful Senate Armed Services Committee, who happens to be a member of her party and a former presidential candidate. Uh, John McCain it, it remains an obstacle, and uh, he's probably going to be there next year. And so I, I don't know that that obstacle is going to clear. And in the Senate, you know, one member can um, upset the entire apple cart. And that is the case with this bill. And so... There, there is tremendous gnashing of teeth on, on the House side, especially among Westerners. But McCain brushes aside the criticism. He says the defense bill is essential to national security, and he had to drop the proposal on the sage grouse because President Obama threatened to veto the bill if it were sent to him, and Democrats would have sided with the White House. You would have had a, a filibuster here, and you would have had a, a veto by the president. As for the policy itself... McCain says sage grouse aren't an impediment to the nation's military, so Western lawmakers should look for another bill to attach the provision to, and not the defense bill, which is known as the NDAA. That has nothing to do with defense, because 
the law is that nothing, no Endangered Species Act could interfere with the operations and training at military bases. So it had no connection to the NDAA. Congresswoman Lummis sums up her frustration like this. Sometimes the enemy is the Senate. And of course, the senators say that about the House. This is one of those cases. And uh, it is not the Senate Democrats. It is one and only one Senate Republican. And it's someone that, you know, I admire. But in this case, he is just wrong. And he is being extremely stubborn. And we are where we are. Not everyone's upset, though. Robert Dewey, with Defenders of Wildlife, has been following the battle over the bird. He says two pending lawsuits imperil the federal government's conservation efforts. Uh, if those lawsuits are successful and the federal plans are knocked out, there would be no backstop. In other words, if there are no plans to conserve the sage-grouse, the, the Fish and Wildlife Service couldn't uh, uh, then list the bird under the Endangered Species Act. And if that happened, the bird would be kind of left without any conservation protections. Wyoming Senator John Barrasso says Western lawmakers aren't giving up on their efforts to keep sage-grouse off the endangered species list. Well, I want to make sure, as a first chance, first opportunity to deal with the issue of the sage-grouse, the impact that it's going to have on Wyoming and on energy of the country and the economy of the country. Uh, I'm going to look for any, any possible venue to make sure that we can deal with this legislatively. Wyoming lawmakers are hoping their effort will be easier at the start of the new year when Republicans regain control of the White House for the first time in eight years. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Matt Laszlo in Washington. President-elect Donald Trump indicated for the first time on Thursday that he supports completion of the Dakota Access Pipeline. Protesters have been camped out at the construction site in North Dakota for months, and now winter has arrived, dumping almost two feet of snow on the encampment this past week. The two-day deluge drove out some of the fair-weather protesters, but most are gearing up to stay. All are waiting to see what happens on Monday, the deadline set by the Army Corps of Engineers for protesters to leave federal land. For Inside Energy, Nikki Wolet reports. Kuze Balu is hurrying to finish wrapping insulation around a wooden structure, like a little box house, at the Ocheti Shikoi camp near the Standing Rock Reservation. It's, it's essentially a glorified tent with a, a lot less chance of caving into snow. Baloo is from Ohio. He's a member of the Pokagon Band of Potawatomi Indians. That's about all people need out here, though, you know? I mean, it's like, I mean, we could, we could go for comfort, but that's not why we're here, right? Baloo is one of a few thousand people committed to this ongoing protest against the Dakota Access Pipeline. They're living in three camps along the banks of the Cannonball River, and that has authorities worried. The Ocheti Shikoi camp is the only one on federal land, where authorities say campers are illegally trespassing. The day after Thanksgiving, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers issued an emergency evacuation order for land it manages near the river. A few days later, North Dakota Governor Jack Dalrymple issued a similar order, warning that people trying to truck in supplies to the camp could be fined, and the state will no longer provide emergency services. We will do our best. Uh, to respond to emergencies, but under those conditions, uh, we cannot guarantee a response. 
Early reports of the evacuation order described it as a blockade. Dalrymple says that's not the case. But he still thinks people should leave for their own safety. He said this emergency order is the same he would issue during an intense flood. We have not at any time uh, ever contemplated uh, going to the main camp and removing people from that area. All we're saying is that we encourage you uh, to find a better place to be. Some people did leave the camp after the storm and governor's order, but more are digging in for a long winter. Knock, knock. Come in. Okay, thank you. Paul Chiokden Wiggins designed and is building a new style of teepee for people preparing to stay and continue protesting the pipeline despite the pair of evacuation orders. They have been endeared with the name tarpee. They're kind of like unicorn teepees because they just have a stovepipe sticking out the top. <laughs> Wiggins is from the Saanich tribe in Washington state. He says he came up with the design after his first trip to Standing Rock in September. And then I looked at the teepees and I was walking around. I was like, that's it. It's the structure. It's the it's, it's perfect shape for the environment. He started a GoFundMe site and raised enough money to build 80. They come equipped with a stove, fire extinguisher, and carbon monoxide detector. Closer to the Missouri River, Corrine Lewis is living in Michigan camp. This is the kitchen. She's part of the little band of Ottawa Indians and has been shuttling back and forth between the camp and her house in Michigan for a few months. I felt like I was so at home and, and empowered to be here. Michigan camp is a cluster of three army green canvas sleeping tents, a mess hall, a teepee filled with supplies, and a few tents half buried in snow. Currently, about 50 people live here. Lewis thinks they can make it without grocery runs for about a month. Even though she's living in the evacuation area, she says she has no plans to leave. I am pretty content here, but I, I don't want to leave. I want to stay here and I want to see what's going to happen. Despite the orders to evacuate, more people are arriving every day, including a group of 2,000 veterans who say they plan to act as human shields between protesters and the police. For Inside Energy, I'm Nikki Willett in Cannonball, North Dakota. When we come back, a number of right-leaning groups have put pressure on the Wyoming legislature, and we will explore the history of transferring federal lands into state control. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Melody Edwards. Over the last several years, a number of right-leaning activist groups have gotten themselves heavily involved in Republican politics in the state. Why Watch was a group that pushed anti-abortion and family value legislation, and Wyoming gun owners pushed for expanded gun rights. But the group with perhaps the biggest impact is the Wyoming Liberty Group. Wyoming Public Radio's Bob Beck says the group has recently taken some heat and vows to go back to its roots. When it started in 2008, the Wyoming Liberty Group saw itself as a conservative government think tank that expressed concern over what they saw as excessive government spending during the energy boom. Amy Edmonds is the group's policy analyst. We work on free market principles. Uh, we are passionate about, uh, as we would say, uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, uh, freedom, and all those wonderful things. So we're looking for free market, limited government solutions. 
Edmonds says those values are shared by a majority of Wyomingites, but she doesn't think the legislature shares those values. The state has now landed itself in what pretty much everyone is calling a structural deficit. And a lot of that is because the state has not been willing to sort of suppress the urge to grow, grow, grow. Edmund says because of this, the state is forced to make serious cuts and potentially harmful decisions. She says the Liberty Group is poised to help. Outgoing Speaker of the House Kermit Brown says they are not a help, they're a hindrance. He's been offended by the group's negative legislative reports and legislative rankings over the years, where lawmakers are rated by their votes on key Liberty Group issues. Brown says if you don't agree with the group, they say you are wrong. They just have a, uh, in my opinion anyway, a really stilted uh, understanding of the budget. And they think the legislature is a bunch of free spenders. They hate the capital uh, innovation. They hate everything about it. Brown says groups like the Liberty Group have helped push the state to be more conservative than it has in the past. He says that's not all bad, but... What's concerning to me is when my party starts to do knee-jerk conservative things that aren't supported by the facts and by rational thinking. That's what concerns me. Liberals in the state are equally concerned. Longtime political observer Roger McDaniel served as a Democrat in the Wyoming legislature and has been involved with state government for over 30 years. McDaniel says parts of Wyoming started to turn more conservative 15 years ago, and the Liberty Group was able to capitalize on that. It not only brought far-right ideas into Wyoming politics, but it brought enough money to make certain that that voice was predominant. That money comes from rich conservative donors who are relatively new to the state. That money has also found itself into political campaigns. While it's not unusual for groups to use money to attack a member of another party, Republicans in the state were surprised how supporters of the Liberty Group and others turned against Republican moderates this year. A group of conservative legislators joined others to run a negative campaign against Cheyenne Senate candidate Dave Swanitzer, who lost to a more conservative candidate. But the most surprising was the defeat of Majority Floor Leader Rosie Berger in Sheridan County. Berger was defeated by newcomer Bo Beitman, who used money from those connected with conservative groups to run a negative campaign against her. Berger says Beitman was able to feast on some surveys and pledges offered by some of these groups. The most notable was the Wyoming Liberty Group's no-tax pledge that she refused to sign because it could have had a negative impact as lawmakers try to address Wyoming's revenue shortfall. It puts a policymaker in a box until you see proposed legislation, until you see your budget, whether you have a surplus or a shortfall, how are you able to make a really good decision? As for the legislature, Berger doesn't mind that these right-leaning groups fight for particular pieces of legislation, but she doesn't care for the fact that they seem to attack those who are not behind a bill 100%. There's no wiggle room for acceptance of individuals that may have questions or may want to amend or to look for compromise. Apparently, some involved with the Liberty Group have acknowledged that they need to be kinder and gentler. That's why they brought in Jonathan Downing to be its new director. Downing has represented a number of groups over the years, and he's well-liked by the majority of legislators. 
Downing says the plan is to be less aggressive and work closely with lawmakers as they face the challenging task of addressing the revenue shortfall. As we look at the future and what those deficits may look like, that's where we'd like to play a role of providing solutions for elected officials to recognize and realize if you make a cut here or if you increase spending here, uh, this is the impact that you're looking at long term. But they still plan to hold legislators accountable and inform constituents about key votes. With so many new legislators serving this year, some veteran lawmakers fear that the group could intimidate them and stymie compromise on some serious issues. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Bob Beck. In recent years, more and more bills have been introduced in Wyoming's legislature that would transfer the management of federal public lands into the state's control. It's not the first time the idea has been attempted, though. Back in the 1950s, a national monument was handed over to the city of Cody. I chatted with Buffalo Bill Museum curator Jeremy Johnston about why the Shoshone Caverns Monument ultimately ended up back in federal hands. Johnston starts the story with how the caves were discovered. Ned Frost was uh, trailing a bobcat with his hunting pack of hounds and one of the dogs disappeared and he trailed it into this cave and discovered um, underneath this ledge this entrance to this cavern and found his dog and everything came back reported his discovery and of course everyone here got very excited about the find and uh, various people went up there and explored the region what did these caves look like? You know, what, what was so exciting about them? Well, I think the, the crystals, there was common reference to there being a lot of crystals in the cave. Uh, these caves too, they were very deep. They're, they're quite elaborate. And I don't think they're really fully explored. So I think just the idea of the unknown attracted a lot of people. And so then they were made into um, Wyoming's second national monument, is that correct? That is correct. That is correct. Buffalo Bill Cody was very interested in the site. So he probably was the one who really worked Washington, D.C., worked with the Secretary of Interior to set aside the caverns as a national monument, which was done in 1909. So it was managed by um, the National Park Service for a lot of decades, um, but then after a while it sounds like locals decided that they were interested in taking over management. Why did the locals decide that they were interested in doing that? They viewed this as another tourist attraction that would lure people into the Cody region. You know, and of course you got to keep in mind at the same time this is occurring, they were really promoting the community as being one of the key gateways into Yellowstone National Park. But then after a while, did the locals begin to feel that maybe the uh, the federal government wasn't doing enough to promote these caves? Well, the big debate was over the access to the site, and that's still a problem today. The, the trail to the caverns was pretty primitive, 
but yet also in the 1930s, the National Park Service was looking at getting rid of the cave. And so it was really, I, I would say it was more the National Park Service looking to try and unload this national monument which wasn't really attracting a lot of people. It was overshadowed by many of the other caverns that were under the National Park Service domain. So they were eager to, to get rid of it. And I think at that point in time, then the Cody community thought they could take it over and make it work. So how did the uh, community go about managing these caves? Well, it became property of the city of Cody. The city of Cody worked with Claude Brown who ran the local fur farm, and he was eager to develop the site. He ran electricity to the area, lit up the caverns. Uh, my understanding is there was a concession stand put inside of the caverns, a place where you could eat. Uh, they worked on opening the road, improving the, the parking lot. But again, what really thwarted the city of Cody and Claude Brown was again the access. So then uh, what happened after Claude Brown um, sort of ran out of energy and money in the 1960s? What happened to the Shoshone Caverns then? You know, through the 1950s, early 1960s, this hope that they could improve the access. None of these were feasible. They were just simply too expensive. And through the late 1960s, early 1970s, it just slowly faded away. You know, very few people came up there. The signs fell down. Unfortunately, it became a, a target of vandals. A lot of the crystals were stripped out, removed. So the site was just really forgotten. So, and then how did the caves ultimately end up returning to federal hands? Well, the Bureau of Land Management came to the city of Cody and said, look, under the arrangement, you promised to develop the site that's not occurring. So the city of Cody tried to decide what they wanted to do with the caverns. They resisted the takeover, mildly resisted the takeover, but eventually the Bureau of Land Management did assume control over the caverns. And to this day, they're now managed by the BLM. And so um, what condition are the caves in now and, and um, how can people access them nowadays? Well, to access the caverns, you need to go through the Bureau of Land Management. They will give you a key to this very, uh, very extensive gate that they erected on the, the entrance of the cavern. Um, I was up there a few years ago and uh, tell you, it took about all my strength just to get through that, that gate. It's a very narrow opening. I think they did that to make sure that uh, you're you're of the size that you can fit in some of the tight spaces in the caverns. Do you think that this story kind of could be a cautionary tale? It is. Just because a site is transferred from federal ownership to private ownership, or in this case a municipality, it doesn't necessarily guarantee it will succeed. But there's other cautionary elements of this story that I think you need to keep in mind as well. For me, one of the most important elements of this story is it really does demonstrate the cooperation that occurred in the early 20th century between the federal government and the city of Cody. And oftentimes we pit that relationship of private owners versus federalism as a good and bad, 
but in this case here there was a lot of cooperation which unfortunately didn't do much for the site itself yeah well thank you so much for taking some time to tell me this story oh you bet anytime that was Buffalo Bill Museum curator Jeremy Johnston talking about the Shoshone Caverns in Cody. A constitutional amendment to allow state management of public lands will be debated in the upcoming legislative session. When we come back, we will look at efforts to return bison to the Wind River Reservation. And federal officials are trying to figure out what to do with some wild horses in southwestern Wyoming. This is Open Spaces. listening to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Melody Edwards. In the checkerboard area of southwest Wyoming, ranchers and wild horse advocates have been battling in court since 2011, leaving the Bureau of Land Management stuck in the middle. The most recent court ruling halted the agency's October roundup. And now, as Wyoming Public Radio's Maggie Mullen reports, the agency must try to find a new management style for wild horses. It's unseasonably warm for a November day in Wyoming, and I'm with a small group of Bureau of Land Management employees out in the checkerboard just east of Rock Springs. The mixture of public and private land is what gives the checkerboard its name, since ownership alternates every other square mile. We're looking for wild horses. Leading the way is Jay Dewart, who works with wild horses for the Rock Springs Field Office. Besides the paperwork, I'm the eyes and ears for the wild horses out here on the range. A few times a week, Dewart will come out here to make sure the horses are healthy, but it's not always easy because the horses roam everywhere. They can cover a lot of country fast. I mean, they can be here one minute and 10 minutes, they could be a couple miles away. Pretty soon, we spot a band of a dozen or so horses about a hundred yards away. Most of them begin to move in the other direction. One, a tall brown Mustang, stays still with a steady eye on us. Dewart says we probably won't be able to get much closer. I say that horse will probably circle around us. He'll stay a From where we're standing, it's hard to tell whether the Mustang is on private or public land since there are no fences in sight. And that has led to a lot of conflicts. In October, the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals in Denver ruled that the BLM broke the law when they rounded up wild horses on public lands in 2014. Ginger Catherines is the executive director of the Cloud Project, a wild horse advocacy group. She became a wild horse advocate back in the 90s when working on a documentary about a herd in the prior mountains of Montana. I really appreciate and respect the way they they live and, and understand their uniqueness. I don't think most people do appreciate or understand what it's like to live wild in a family. The Cloud Foundation was one of the organizations that sued the BLM and stopped them from doing their roundup two months ago that would have removed 600 wild horses. Right now, there could be as many as 1,900 wild horses roaming in and out of the checkerboard at any given moment. Ranchers and the BLM agree that that is too many. The BLM determines population limits based on the amount of land and food needed to support the 
horses and other wildlife, but Catherine says the checkerboard can support this many horses, and they're better off here than in holding pins in the Midwest. On-the-range management means that the animals are not removed and warehoused at taxpayer expense somewhere, but they're allowed to live their lives on the range. Catherine's believes if left to their own devices, wild horse populations will balance themselves out. And if that isn't equaling out based on natural causes of extreme weather or predation, then we enter the equation as the predators and we try to keep foals from being born. And the BLM says it is researching how much fertility treatment would cost, but it won't fix the problem as fast as some ranchers like Bill Talifer would like it to. If it were up to me, well, I guess get rid of them. Apparently they can't handle them. They're going to run out of money here pretty quick. Can't have that many horses just sitting around. For Talifer, the problem goes all the way back to 1971 when Congress passed the Wild Horse and Burrow Act. That act gave the BLM the responsibility of managing and protecting wild horses. But Talifer says they haven't done that job. BLM wouldn't allow us to devastate their grounds with cattle or sheep like they're allowing horses to devastate our ground. He's worried that Wyoming will soon experience the same issues as other western states. I mean, look at Nevada. They've got huge problems of overgrazing by wild horses. I mean, the horses are dying on the range now because there's no feed. Back out on the range, the Mustang that once stood on lookout has trotted away to reunite with the other horses. I asked BLM supervisor Spencer Allred what it's like to be caught in the middle of polar opposite views. He says it's just part of the job. That's our goal is to find a balanced approach. And it often tends to be that uh, when finding a balanced approach, both extremes are not happy. Um, but but it is part of our, our duty and what we do. The BLM is hoping to have another chance to get it right when they draft a new management plan this upcoming summer when they might decide that the checkerboard area is just too complicated of a landscape for wild horses. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Maggie Mullen. For as long as 75-year-old Dick Baldez can remember, his tribe has been trying to bring wild bison back to the Wind River Indian Reservation. Some of the old-timers would talk about that and how important the buffalo is. I mean, that's always been that way. In November, the tribe saw that dream realized. They set 10 wild bison loose on 300 acres on the Wind River Indian Reservation. Dick Baldez spent his entire career working to bring back wildlife to the reservation, and it was his son, Jason, that helped make the bison release a reality. Wyoming Public Radio's Melody Edwards attended the release ceremony. It started with a prayer. Our family are hunters, fishermen, and gatherers. You know, we do all that, still do. And so that's what I was raised with. My, my dad was a big hunter, and my mom was 
real camper and an and outdoor cook. And so we spent a lot of time in the, in the hills, you know, in the rivers and streams. And so that background has been in our family, still is in our family. It always will be, I think. And they used to, I used to hear the stories before we were old enough to go with them hunting and, and, and uh, some of the backcountry stuff. And so, you know, that was always intriguing to think, you know, someday I'm going to be doing that. I've always thought, it, you know, that buffalo didn't get the respect that it should because what animal contributed more to native people and the life that they lived than that animal? There is none. So it's logical to have them here, but gee, it was, who knew that it was going to be such a battle to ever get them here? That was my saving grace. I finally got on the National Wildlife Federation board and I, I looked around at these people and thought, man, these are the kind of people that I, I can deal with, I can fit in, they're my kind of people. Pretty soon, you know, if you hear it long enough, pretty soon people start saying, well, you know, that's not such a bad idea. Let's try it. How did you feel today seeing oh. those bison run out there? So proud. And those buffalo. Oh, I, I, I don't know how to say it. But just think what they're going to do when we eventually get, you know, several hundred or two, three thousand, and we turn them loose, really loose, as free-ranging buffalo in the Owl Creek Mountains, and eventually in the Wind River Mountains, too. If, I mean, if we get a, a, a problem buffalo or two or a few, the best thing to do is eat them. I'd like to introduce someone that's really been a key component of making this happen. I'd like to have Jason Baldus, the Eastern Shoshone Buffalo representative, come up and say a few words. Oh, what a great day. I just want to give you a little bit of background about how this came to be. Um, yeah, I thought I thought I saw them like, just they just yeah, ran. Yeah, and then that drops off uh, down into the river bottom there. You know, they're checking out their, their new home. This is their, their new new stomping grounds. And uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, they're they're testing, testing out the fence and there they are again, they're coming back up. Oh yeah. They had a little coaxing, but uh, yeah, once you know, they I got think going, that was the right way to do it by by bringing them out with a song, you know, and that that song uh, had words in it that that said, uh, you know, we we honor the buffalo, we love the buffalo. When I was 18, my, uh, my father and I took a trip to East Africa, and got to witness the wildebeest migration, and uh, that was so awe-inspiring uh, to see because. 1.5 million wildebeest is the largest ungulate migration in the world today. But what was more inspiring or, or uh, unfathomable was that uh, that is less than 5% of what the buffalo was here on this continent. We had our own Serengeti uh, here and it was uh, annihilated as a means to destroy uh, and kill the food source for native people. When I returned from there, I've always worked on uh, projects that were beneficial to home. I chose Montana State University because of the proximity of other Indian nations in Montana and pursued a land resources environmental science degree that would allow me to write a management plan 
that could uh, help dictate what a, what a restoration could look like. So even though bison haven't been here 130 years, uh, you can still go out on the landscape and see these relic wallows, uh, which create microhabitats for plants that were beneficial foods, tools, and medicines to, to our people way back when. How did it feel having, you know, after all of this, you know, your dad's long career, it's seven, been 70 years that the, your tribe's been working on this. It's very, very emotional. Um, Teary-eyed, people are crying today to see those buffalo hit the, hit the ground. It's not just an animal to us, it's, it's, a, it's our brother and it's our brethren and it's our kin. And uh, to restore that relationship is, is unprecedented and, and we made history today. That was Wind River Native Advocacy Center Director Jason Baldez and his father, a former tribal fish and wildlife biologist, Dick. They spoke with Wyoming Public Radio's Melody Edwards at the bison release ceremony on the Wind River Indian Reservation. Changing gears, winter in Yellowstone National Park has become a time for people to get a better look at Yellowstone's wolf population. It's also a great time to hear the wolves howl. Jennifer Jarrett produced this piece from Yellowstone. They're howling at I often think about when um, we hear wolves howling is, um, I'm sure you know the story, that it was the last of the original Yellowstone wolves were killed in 1926, about half a mile from where we're standing. And so for any visitor that had come to Yellowstone from 1926 to 1995, when wolves were brought back and reintroduced and reestablished, you know, I'm sure they had a great experience visiting the world's first national park, and they would have seen a lot of great stuff. But there's one thing that they missed out on. There would have been an unnatural silence here. But luckily we realized what a big mistake that was and figured out how to rectify it. So we're experiencing that right now. That silence is over. I'm Rick McIntyre. I work for the Park Service in Yellowstone National Park, and my title is Biological Technician.
When we come back, a fascinating interview with the famous Wyoming artist Nelchi. This is Open Spaces. This is Open Spaces. I'm Bob Back. And I'm Melody Edwards. The celebrated Wyoming artist Nelgie has led a storied life. She's recently released her memoir, North of Crazy, chronicling her journey from high society to the high plains. As the daughter of famed publisher Nelson Doubleday, Nelgie had a privileged life, growing up in her family's home in New York, Long Island, and South Carolina. But as an adult, she left society life and moved to her adopted home near Sheridan where she still lives. Nelgie spoke with Wyoming Public Radio's Micah Schweitzer. I mean, reading your book, it's it's like reading some sort of period drama, right? This yes. is the kind of thing <laughs> I watch on PBS. Yeah, a little bit. It's a, it's a mini um, Daunton Abbey. <laughs> exactly. You read this and it sounds like, like the charmed life, and yet it seems like perhaps it was not entirely the charmed life. For me, it wasn't a charmed life. Um, I I was lucky to live in a house where there was big rooms, um, a swimming pool, tennis court. There were all the um, attributes of wealth, but there was not a wealth of love. There was, that was a vacuum. This seems like the classic anecdote any successful artist can tell is that, of course, at some point in your early life, you're told that that's not who you are. You failed art in third grade. Yeah, I failed art in the third grade. Now, how you do that, I, I wouldn't stay in the lines. I didn't, I didn't make clear colors. And part of that was simply being too nervous, too scared. I was molested when I was nine, and nobody talked about it. It just sort of disappeared. Um, I was sent to a psychiatrist for a short time and then nothing. And as it, you hear now, because there are many, uh, there's something like over 75% of women have been sexually abused in some form. So I'm not, I'm not unique by any means. Um, but it takes a long time to get over it, and you don't get over it all, ever. When you're nine years old and somebody, the man threatens to kill you if you set, tell anybody, it's, a, it's the voice is there. I also had been given um, hormones so that I would stop growing because I was the size, I was five foot nine at nine years old. And um, those hormones made me a woman. They were trying to get me to have a period at a point when I was much too young. And this was what, so you wouldn't be too tall? Yeah, because my father didn't want me to be six foot tall. That's what I was told. And he didn't want anybody, he didn't want a woman on equal footing. 
in any way. Height, mind, looks. He was an old-fashioned man. But that was also the world you grew up in. I mean, as you point out in the book, it was a, in every way, a male-dominated world. Absolutely. I've noticed it still is. Nelchi got married when she was 18. Less than 10 years later, she was divorced. And she moved to Wyoming in 1966, where she took an art class at Sheridan College. The Japanese sumi. This is an ink technique, right? Yes, the ink on uh, rice paper. And I learned to do all the classic things, how to make bamboo, how to do plum, how to do bamboo leaf. And I didn't want any of it. But I could do what I wanted to do. I could take what my feeling was from my gut inside, and I could lay it down. And I learned that the stroke, the mark you make on a piece of paper is the mark you make in life. It doesn't disappear. You can put another one down over it, but the first one is always there. And that was a philosophical lesson that was, to me, vitally important. And that has been um, the foundation of all my paintings. Everything is the mark comes from there, right in the solar plexus. And people say to me, well, do you think of something before you paint? Do you, do you have an image in mind? Do you have a subject in mind? And I, I don't. A good deal of the time, I don't. And you have to be willing to make a terrible mess. And I've made a lot of those. But that's the way it is. That's the way you work. Um, I'm an abstract expressionist, and I paint the moment. I live in the moment. And in some sense, what you're doing in, in your large-scale works harkens back to, to not wanting to draw the bamboo or the bamboo leaf, or even before that, in third grade, not being able to draw within the lines. No, oh, exactly. Ain't staying there. Not happening. <laughs> it does seem that, that a certain amount of your work does fall within two broad categories. You have uh, what could be considered landscapes. Yep. And then also about women. Well, they're my two subjects. That's all I know anything about. All the rest is um, conjecture. When it comes to painting about women, that's, that's about you and about the world that you live in, that's about the relationship. That's what the way women are treated. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's really about the way women are treated. And for so long, we couldn't say anything. And the anger that I had and still have at the way women are treated and the um, condescending nature that many men address women, um, particularly Donald Trump, I find um, to be insufferable. You can't get anybody to hear you. And I think that's like being imprisoned. And those are those black bars that are on a lot of your women paintings. Yeah. Well, the black bars and the one that are on the side of those are what entraps you. Yes, exactly. You read them right. And you started painting when you were 30. Yeah. This is after your divorce, uh, after, after your nervous breakdown following your divorce. Uh, mm -hmm. What drove you to paint? 
I wanted a voice for my anger. I wanted to be able to speak, and I couldn't. And once I, once I got free with the sumi and I could make the marks of energy and of love and of joy and of delight and of curiosity and of dynamic um, electricity attached to nothing, I could... I could speak. I had a voice. And I remember the feeling of when I got that voice. It was overwhelming. It flooded right through me to every single, to the ends of my fingertips, to my toes, to the end of my nose, to my earlobe, everywhere. And I had nobody I could tell it to. And so I just went out and screamed. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. Yes, I just went out in the yard and screamed. Yeah. And if uh, the size of one's painting is, is maybe indicative of volume, your, your, your voice has gotten loud. You're doing 10 by 30 foot paintings now. They're very comfortable for me. They're about my size because I use my whole body when I paint. And it's like a dance. And once I get rolling, it takes over. I find four-foot-by-four-foot canvases small. Hmm. Now, well, the first canvas I had was maybe three inches by two inches, and I was too shy to even look up and look at it on the wall of a gallery. Three inches by two inches. Yes, so what changed between three inches by two inches and, and 10 feet by 30 feet? I learned, and I did a lot of interior work. I realized I had so much pain and anger and frustration uh, from being ignored as a child and on feeling unloved and feeling abandoned that I had to take care of that in order to grow up. I couldn't just pretend anymore. And the pains that were inside me had to be dealt with. That takes time. And that's what freed you up to, yeah. to, to grow artistically. And that you have to do that in order to be. In order to be. That's what you need to do. Thank you for listening to Open Spaces. If you missed part of the show, you can hear it on our website at wyomingpublicmedia.org. You can also dial up individual segments on that site and sign up for our podcast there or on iTunes. And a reader is our web editor. We love to get story and interview ideas from listeners. You can send those to us via the website or on Twitter. Make sure you give us plenty of notice. We will be back with you next week with a new show, and Governor Matt Mead is scheduled to join us. Open Spaces is a production of Wyoming Public Radio News.